It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone. And Genesee Health Plan can help. I called and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, healthcare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to geneseehealthplan.org. We're in this together and together we'll get through it. From Amari, Christian, Skyler, Caitlin, Nolade, Jordan, Antonio, Eddie, and the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a lot of cool stuff coming up on the show today. We're going to be talking about uh, some holiday uh spending tips and uh, budgeting advice with um, the executive editor of Wise Bread and CNBC contributor Janet Alvarez and uh, John Sellers from Bank of America and uh, that's coming up during the third half of our three-hour tour and uh, before that we're going to talk with the New York Times USA Today Wall Street Journal Los Angeles Time and Publishers Weekly internationally best-selling author Melissa De La Cruz. She's going to be talking about a new series, uh, Never After, The Thirteenth Fairy. This is the first book in the uh, in the new series. But first, we're going to talk about billionaires and how much we all want to be one. No, I'm kidding about that, although there may be more truth than not in that. But we're going to talk with... Um, He's been on the show several times from the uh, Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, uh, and he joins me by phone, I don't think, from Washington, Chuck Collins. Chuck, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. Now, where are you? I'm in New England. I'm in Boston area. Oh, okay. In Boston. But, the, but, but IPS is based in Washington. Yes. Yes, the, the the research organization is headquartered there, but we actually have a New England office here in in Boston. Wherever you are, right? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a there's a good team of us here, which is great. Really, that's the, we haven't. Well, I was going to we s- haven't been meeting together though for a while. <laughs> I, I was going to say there must be uh, quite a team because just in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten uh, multiple reports sent out from IPS. Um, related to uh, the impact of the pandemic on 
the accumulation of wealth and the people who aren't sharing in it. In fact, one report comes right out and says, in so many words, billionaire wealth versus community health finds essential workers continue to suffer as U.S. billionaires gain almost a trillion dollars. Then I have another one that says uh, they've surpassed a trillion dollars in wealth gains. Um, also, uh, a coalition that IPS was part of calling on Senate to include $200 billion for charities in relief package. Um, and, and, and the list goes on and on and on. You guys have been busy. We have, but I think it's I think it's the moment we're in. You know, um, you know. Think about after the economic meltdown in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, you know, U.S. billionaire wealth went down for three years, just along with everybody else's fortunes. You know, so that's kind of what I was expecting to see back in March and April when we were looking at you know what's happening to wealth at the very top. But it's been the opposite. It's uh, it's like the wealth of the 650 U.S. billionaires has gone up a trillion dollars since the middle of March when the pandemic really started to kick in. And the biggest gains are companies that we know about that are sending, you know, thousands of frontline central workers into the viral line of fire, if you will. Uh, they're, they're, they're the ones who are packing boxes and sending them to us or stocking grocery stores or working in medical health clinics. And they're not making billions of dollars. <laughs> and so I think it, it's that juxtaposition that, that, uh, that has irritated me, just the fact that some people could make so much wealth at a time when others are giving up and losing their lives or livelihoods and wealth. Um, there's just something wrong with this picture. Did you happen to watch the uh, the Senate debate from Georgia last night? No, I missed that. Was uh, there was this a, a theme? Well, there was a great line that relates to what you were just saying. Um, the uh, the Democratic candidate uh, used the phrase, and I thought you'd get a kick out of it. Essential workers ought to be getting essential pay. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's that it you know I mean take take uh, one company Walmart the three major owners of Walmart uh children of Sam Walton Alice Jim and Rob their combined wealth is 210 or more than that 210 billion during the pandemic their wealth has gone up 48 billion dollars in less than a year during the pandemic so is this a company that can afford to pay their workers hazard pay, uh, that can afford paid sick leave if somebody's exposed or has a family member that's experiencing COVID? Yeah, this is a company that could do that. Similarly with Amazon, you know, over 20, probably 25,000 Amazon workers at this point have been infected. Uh, they've hired 300,000 new workers and wedged them into the existing warehouses and infrastructure. We're, we're thankful that Amazon is out there and they're able to deliver some packages. And we, But those workers are the ones who are creating that wealth. And yet Jeff Bezos' wealth has gone up $70 billion since March. Can't these owners in this moment share some of that wealth with the people who are creating that wealth and making their company so valuable right now? That's 
that's our point, I guess. It's Chuck. It's interesting that you brought up the uh, the downturn in two thousand eight and the fact that that did impact the very wealthy, and yet here we have uh, another downturn in the economy, at least for an awful lot of people, um, and yet the the wealthy aren't being impacted uh, during the uh, economic downturn. Um, at least not like they were in 2008. And, of course, I think some of that had to do with that housing bubble that burst. And people had money tied up in that. Were there lessons learned that we're seeing wealthy people take advantage of this time around as the economy turns down? Well, I think, again, uh, the bailouts in 2008, uh, the flooding, the money into the system of quantitative easing. Uh, it, it's certainly true that wealthy people bounced back faster. They saw their wealth gains return much faster than the rest of society. But it, the, I, I was just struck by the fact that their wealth went down. You know that ev- that Wall Street and the and the you know the stock market was connected to the suffering in the real economy. You know, people were losing their jobs, losing their homes. Um, but I think your question about lessons is still really important. For instance, uh, in 2008, 2009, there was this whole focus on austerity. Oh, no, we can't spend money to help the economy. Uh, we can't, uh, you know, help bail out the people who are losing their homes. We'll just bail out the auto industry, which, of course, we from Michigan think is important. But, you know, that that we bailed out the wealthy and the corporations and the banks, and we didn't help, you know, Main Street businesses and ordinary people. And that's why it took, you know, even even a decade after 2008, a lot of people still had, like, the, the hangover from the Great Recession, you know, going into this pandemic. People were barely getting back on their feet economically, and some had never really recovered. So I think what I, I think we can anticipate is, on January 21st, we're going to hear particularly these Republicans who've been quiet for four years start talking about the debt again and austerity and we got to tighten our belts and we can't spend money to help unemployed workers in the in a recession. You know, we're going to hear the same bunch of baloney again. And this time around, I think we just have to be like, wait a second, wait a second. Where have you first? Where have you been the last four years? Where you've been? giving tax cuts to the rich, you haven't been talking about the debt and the deficits. And secondly, this is how we're going to get out of this. You know, you, this is the moment. If you're going to do emergency borrowing, this would be the time. And and uh, you know, here we are, sitting here, like, going into this winter of pain uh, with this hope that at some point we'll have a vaccine in a couple months, but we got to get through the next three months. And yeah, workers got to get through the next three months. Chuck, I want to go back to uh, 2008 again for just a moment. Am I correct in remembering that there were two $700 billion uh, bailouts that, uh, that occurred? One from uh, George W. Bush and then a second one after Barack Obama was sworn in? And, you know, I think that sounds about right. I, I, I have a $1.5 billion or a trillion dollar number in my head, so that would, that would make sense. Um, and that doesn't necessarily even count the real cost of the Federal Reserve's, what they call the quantitative easing, which is just making the interest rates go down so low, which is very good for investors 
and people who own a lot of assets and capital um, and, you know, basically buoyed the economy. It kind of created an artificial boost for for the, the, the wealthiest in the economy. So that was another form of subsidy, if you will, that... that but it was it was almost immediately after Obama was elected that you started to hear this we can't afford, you know, austerity. we have to tighten our belts austerity and that was a mistake. More people could have bounced we could have more people bounce back. But that from the was Great recession. But that but that was right after uh, a combined uh, 1.5 trillion dollars had been used to bail out primarily the auto industry and uh, Wall Street and the big banks. That's, that's, that's right. And and that's that's, right. that's what um, birthed the phrase "too big to fail." That's right. Yeah. No. And I think that it, there may be good reasons for those policies, and they they had some. I think they did, you know, prevent free fall in parts of the economy. But where there was more we could have done to help uh, working class homeowners. We, we let millions of people just go into foreclosure and lose their houses who've never f- recovered economically. There, there was a cost to society in just turning our backs on, you know, millions of people who, for no fault of their own, were also caught up in that economic downturn. And I would argue that that, that bailout was appropriate because those... those uh, big institutions were in jeopardy of failing and that needed to happen to keep things going now we have a situation where the harm isn't happening to the big businesses and and the big money interests it's happening significantly among the lower earning parts of our population yeah i mean i think we know right now we should be just like we did in the first phase of the pandemic we should increase unemployment benefits that that six hundred dollars a month federal supplement that went to people who who are out of work made a huge difference it made a difference in our family i can test well and everybody um, got a twelve hundred dollar check that was that was amazing yeah that twelve hundred dollars you know that and 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 if you look at what other, you know, industrial cut, uh, you know, European countries and Canada and others have done, they've, they've kind of basically kept up that level of support. So people can stay home. They can, you know, continue to purchase and consume things, but they're not, you know, uh, they've lost their jobs. You know, we've 100,000 com- businesses have closed, you know, because of the pandemic. These are smaller businesses mostly, uh, you know, that that sort of helps us, that will help us in the next three months. It's like a win-win. Chuck, it's good for the whole economy. Chuck, I hate to interrupt, but I have to go to a break here. Um, can you stick around so we can talk some more? I want to pick it up there Look, and, yes. and and talk about uh, relief and, uh, and, and the comparison that you just made. Um, my guest is Chuck Collins from the Institute for Policy Studies. And uh, we're going to take a short break, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break, and then we'll be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bell swing and jingle bell ring. Snowing and blowing up bushes of fun. Now the jingle hop has begun. Jingle, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bell chime and jingle bell time. Dancing and prancing in jingle bell square. In the frosty, frosty air. What a bright time, it's the right time to ride the night away. Jingle bells, jingle bells, to go gliding in a one-horse sleigh. Giddy up, jingle horse, pick up your feet. Jingle around the clock. Mix and mingle in a jingling beat. That's the jingle bell rock. Jingle, 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 giddy up, jingle horse, pick up your feet. Jingle around the clock. Mix and mingle in a jingling beat. That's the jingling jingle bell rock. Jing, jing, jingle bell rock. One more time. Come on and giddy up, jingle horse, pick up your feet and jingle around the clock. Mix and mingle in the jingling beat. That's the jingling jingle bell rock. Jing, jing, jingle bell Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
Elena, Gabriella, Erica, and the Tom Sumner Program. Christmas 2020 may be very different than holidays of old. Christmas Eve on the Tom Sumner Program can bring back some treasured memories with an encore of our Thanksgiving 2020 show featuring all holiday music. And our Christmas music is better than everybody else's because it's local. Let the Tom Sumner Program be your Christmas Eve soundtrack streaming from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com, repeating online all day and night. Simulcast on WFOV 92.1. FM in Flint at 9 a.m. and p.m. Happy Holidays from the Tom Sumner Program. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is... uh, Chuck Collins from the Institute for Policy Studies. Chuck, thanks for uh, being here, and thanks for sticking around. You bet. Good to have this conversation. Um, Just before the break, you made a a comparison uh, between the the stimulus money that was uh, doled out back, what, April, I think, Um, April or May, and uh, the $1,200 checks that everybody got, and you were comparing it to Canada, and I would add that some some other countries in Europe and around the world have also kept up with uh, support for uh, people who've been displaced uh, by the pandemic. Um, and and yet, at the time that that money was doled out to twelve hundred dollar checks and the uh, what was it called the CARES Act, um, it. Uh, provided some relief but at the time people were saying we're only expecting it to be two or three months and now we're more than nine months into this and uh, people are still arguing over a second relief package um what why is america so slow to to continue support the way other countries have well, I think it. I think in the end, it comes down to sort of this this ideology that you should never give anything so-called free. There's you know, no that free lunch. Under, there's no free lunch. It <laughs> undermines the work, the work ethic, et cetera. You know, and, and for whatever reason, um, it's 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 very short-sighted. I mean, you know, the re- part of the reason why the economy didn't tank and why Wall Street has done quite well is that through the summer people were getting these these additional this money in their pocket and it wasn't you know these were again through no fault of their own people millions of people lost their jobs um and to have a little bit extra in your unemployment check meant that you could maintain your standard of living and pay your bills and pay rent and mortgages and that we didn't see this kind of mass defaults and you know now we're heading into January, looking at an eviction crisis that that is just dizzying, people uh, unable to pay, you know, who are, you know, not or going to go over the edge, 
you know, economically, and it's going to have all kinds of negative ripples through the economy. So for whatever reason, you know, Mitch McConnell doesn't want to add money to or, or pass a COVID relief bill. Uh, it's very short-sighted from the perspective of the whole economy, and what and and just from a human humanitarian moment, it is going to be a really rough couple of months. And we should, as a society, come together, especially when some are are making so much wealth. You know that the whole stimulus checks, the 159 million stimulus checks, cost about 267 billion, and yet the the, the 650 billionaires in the United States have seen their wealth go up four times that, a trillion dollars in the same eight months. You know, we are a wealthy society. It is really in everyone's interest to, to, to provide some relief to get through the next three, four months of cold winter and, and economic suffering. I've, you and I have discussed this before, and I just wonder if you have any new thoughts on how it can be that that the wealthy continue to thrive when so many people are out of work and uh, unable to pay their rent and um, you know how how one part of the economy can suffer while another one flourishes. Um, I, I I've paraphrased it is are there two pots of money are they um are there two different economies yeah i mean in a way there's a set there, there there's an economy that's wired now that enables uh you know a couple dozen companies and a couple handful of billionaires to extract huge amounts of wealth from the real economy from consumers from our paychecks from our electric bills whatever um there's money that's just extracted and flowing upwards and and that there's no kind of counterweight to that um so you could have an amazon that just you know is able to hire you know 300,000 new workers put them into the existing warehouses where it's almost it is impossible to do social distancing and protection and and not have to invest in the kind of things that would re- protect their workers in this moment. So yeah, I think it is like there's a there's one economy for the ninety nine point nine percent, and there's this economy for the richest one tenth of one percent, who are just able to funnel up, hoover up, as my English friends say, a lot of money from the real economy. That's the problem, and 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 we can fix that. We can do things to protect, uh, you know, essential workers in this moment. Things like raise their wages, have family medical leave, hazard pay for those who really are in the viral line of fire. Um, those are those are some of the ways we can offset that. Well, Ronald Reagan used to be, you know, the hero of the conservatives, and he promoted what uh, George H.W. Bush called voodoo economics, but essentially he was talking about a trickle-down theory, where if uh, Wall Street is doing well, everybody's doing well, because more people will get jobs, they'll get better-paying jobs, because the money that was being funneled into the rich would trickle down through these employees, but it doesn't seem to be doing that. Yeah, I mean, if, if if people are still 
sort of holding on to that theory, that means they're just not looking at 40 years of evidence. We, we've seen wages go down, the middle class shrink, huge amounts of wealth flow upwards, not just to the 1%, but really to this top one-tenth of 1%. Um, you know, th- this, th- this billionaire class at the very top has $4 trillion of combined wealth now. That's like 4% of all the wealth in the whole society. Uh, and the bottom half of all U.S. households has about $2 trillion. So you got 650 people with twice the amount of wealth that the bottom half of all U.S. households combined. That's new, Tom. That's, that's not 1960s or 1970s well, or that's, even... That's what I'm saying, Chuck, is defenders, yeah. defenders of the free market always uh, sort of fall back on the old trickle-down theory that, you know, if, if big businesses are making a lot of money, they can afford to pay people better salaries and provide more benefits but they don't yeah i mean that's the that's the thing wages have been flat look at all the major industries that that uh, that touch our lives wages are going down they've been you know in the last two years we've seen a very slight uptick in the middle median wage and that's after 40 years of amazing productivity gains workers in this society are more productive than ever uh, thanks in part to new technologies but that productivity gain has not been shared with the broader you know society it's funneled up to the super rich um, and yeah it, we're, we have a middle class that's lost savings lost home ownership uh, doesn't have the same sense of security and well-being that uh, their parents had that's that's broken so anybody who's sort of still preaching the trickle-down gospel just isn't looking at the evidence what has happened to our communities and to our society we've become incredibly economically pulled apart polarized what happened to the notion that that wages should be um, tied um, annually to the rate of inflation, or I would uh, suggest the rate of growth in the economy um, so that the minimum wage would automatically increase annually as uh, the GDP goes up. I, I, I don't know what happened to that idea. I mean, I, I would say, why, what happened, why aren't wages connected to productivity you know, it used to be that you could sort of say, uh, you know, we're building cars. Capital and investors added this much to the productivity, and workers and labor added this much. And labor share of productivity gains has gone almost entirely to investors. So the rules of the economy have been really good for asset owners, wealth holders, at the expense of people who work for wages. That's the sort of fancy way of the theory, you know. And and, uh, yeah, we could have a minimum wage. It would be so simple just to say the minimum wage is tied to inflation. Uh, instead, we've, we haven't had a minimum wage increase in 11 years. Well, you remember um, from, from your days living in Michigan and, and the uh, heyday of the auto industry and, I would argue, uh, the heyday of the UAW as well. But in their various contract negotiations, 
um, there was always built in sort of into the salaries an annual increase that was tied to inflation. That was sort of the norm in the auto industry. That that no longer exists. Um, but but it was a notion that that some other uh, salary negotiators, you know, tried to uh, adopt and and make somewhat universal, and it was working for a while. Yeah, in in a way, it 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 was a a key part of the shared prosperity. We're going to grow together economy, you know. So really from the 1930s depression world war ii up into the mid 70s we did have a rising tide lifts all boats economy and in part that was because organized labor was there it had more power than it has today and it was able to say yeah we want a share of the productivity gains we're gonna you know that's part of our contract that's part of our social contract with the employers and as you know the number of workers in unions has gone from 33% of the workforce down to less than 10% of the workforce, that's a change in power. And uh, labor's not able to say, hey, you know, share the productivity gains with the workers who help create the wealth. Uh, so it's a really a power dynamic. Um, and companies haven't figured out on their own that, oh, well, it's actually a good thing to pay our workers well because it, you know, it adds to productivity in other ways. They're They're happy to just take what they can and they are and and i'm i'm wondering you and i again you and i have uh, touched on this before but there are um there was a time and i'm kind of preaching to the choir when i bring this up chuck um is there was a time when businesses that did well shared that wealth voluntarily because of that, you know, rising tide lifts all boats uh, sort of attitude, but also because of, of a sense of um, a sense of community, of wanting the community to do better because they were doing better, and to continue to make that community do better, believing that the better the community did, the better they would do ultimately, and you know, it 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 seemed to appease people who operate from greed to continue to operate that way, the way that other um, more altruistic uh, businesses were behaving. And um, I think it was uh, your friend uh, Morris Pearl at the uh, Patriotic Millionaires who recently said, um, yeah, I'm greedy too. I, I want to live in a community that has good roads and, and uh, quality education. <laughs> right. A different kind of, he, 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 gree, he lusts after something different. <laughs> a healthy community. But yeah. when, when did, uh, you know, successful businessmen stop being part of celebrating community? When did it become this private club? You know, it's a really interesting question, and 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 you know, coming out of World War II, uh, there was a there's a really interesting book about um, all the people who, mostly men, mostly white men, who graduated from business schools, you know, uh, in those days, and went on to become the kind of captains of industry. They had a very different set of values. They had 
a very strong sense of what you're describing. Well, they got a lot a of them got those de- a lot of them got those degrees because of the GI Bill. That's right. They they sort of understood there was a virtuous circle of the society's investing in me, and I'm going to be a steward of these businesses and and and, and companies were more rooted in place. Um, you know, part of part of what's changed in the '60s and '70s was, uh, you know, globalization, new technologies, um, the internationalization of of workforces, um, and then there was a whole new generation of managers who were not connected to place. They didn't care about Flint, and they didn't care about, you know, Dearborn, and they didn't care about Traverse City. Or they they were they were global in their outlook, and they worshipped the financial the short-term financial return you know that was the altar that they laid their their uh, offerings on and uh yeah so that so i think part of what happened was a culture shift you know away from a sort of community responsibility we're all in this together to uh i'm gonna take the take as much as i can i have no obligations to place or even country um and then you know the fact that labor lost. You know it was both the culture and the values, but but the the fact is, you know, you had a workforce where a third of the workers were in a union who said, hey, "Yo, what about us? What about the workers? Remember us?" And they could enforce through collective bargaining some sharing. So it was both the culture and that social contract, and both those things changed over over 30 years. Um, and that's you know so now we're in the completely, you know, take the money and run economy, uh, unfortunately, for the rest of us. One of, uh, Chuck, one of the hats that you wear at the Institute for Policy Studies is uh, as director of the Charity Reform Initiative, and you've recently partnered with uh, some others, the uh, Wallace Global Fund and uh, Eileen Getty uh, Foundation, um, to implore on, uh, on the U.S. Senate to include relief for charities is what we've been talking about sort of at the heart of that of that notion that uh, uh, philanthropic uh, institutions uh, around the country are also suffering and if they're going to pick up some of the slack that uh, that government stimulus won't that they need to be bolstered yeah, you know, I mean, I think in a lot of states, the nonprofit sector is getting hammered now because of state and local budget cuts. You know, I think that's happening in Michigan. It's happening where I live. Um, and connected to that is a lot of very wealthy people have charitable foundations. And in a way, in, at an initial glance, it looks like, well, this is good. These are folks who are sharing their money. They're not just buying another yacht or another lake house they're 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 moving the money uh but unfortunately the and again we're talking about really the the most wealthy people in the society they create private family foundations and donor advised funds these are ways in which the wealthy give their money you know you and i and most working people when we give our money to charity we give it directly to the charity we don't create a whole new kind of intermediary so one of the weird things that's happening is the wealthy are warehousing charitable dollars. They're getting tax breaks when they put their money into a private foundation, but then they sit on it and uh, they they 
warehouse it or even hoard it, if you will. Um, and there's very little incentive for them to move the money. A private foundation has to give away 5% of their wealth every year. Um, but many of these foundations are racking up much higher returns than that. And they treat that 5% as a ceiling, uh, not as the floor. So part of, part of what our, our work is to say, let's, let's increase the payout, especially during an emergency pandemic. Let's require foundations to pay out a higher percentage of that wealth so it gets to those charities uh, that are doing the most important work, the nonprofit groups at the local level. Well, I, yeah, what you're describing is that a lot of these people with charitable foundations will set up, if it's big enough, they will set up an, an account that's tax-exempt from the earnings and, um, and, and, as you say, get these large returnings, uh, returns on um, the amount of money that they have uh, uh, in terms of interest as the money sits there and then they're making their charitable gifts out of that interest never touching the principal that's right exactly and they they have See, when you and i give money live. to the bell ringer you know at, at, at the mall or you know at walmart or Myers or someplace you know we're reaching into our pocket and pulling a dollar you know out and putting it in the kettle um that's a little different than what they're doing. That's direct. You know, um, by the way, those bell ringers are not raising much money this year because people are not out and about. That's you know? right. So, uh, that, that's a really, it's a really big challenge. And those are the charities that directly give to the most needy people, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think this is a it's, – it's, I, I don't want to be critical of people's generosity because I think there's a lot of good – and there's a lot of acts of generosity, and people are moving their money, especially during the pandemic. But if you step back and look at it, there's like $1.2 trillion sitting in these private foundations and, and uh, these donor-advised funds. Um, and this is money that could be moving to the food banks. You know, we're again, we're going into this winter of pain. The nonprofit groups that are providing, you know, help to people are themselves just reeling and we're going to see several years of state and local budget cuts because uh states un unlike the federal government can't print money and can't invent money and 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 at this point the, the federal government isn't sending aid to the states so it's got it's it's pretty pretty it's part of the bleak picture right now and so our our, our argument to the senate the u.s senate is look increase foundation payout these are wealthy donors. They already got their tax break, for heaven's sake. They already got it. Now we're just saying move the money. Uh, it's not going to cost the taxpayer any more money. So if you're worried about adding to the national debt, this is a great way to move $200 billion to the nonprofit sector right now uh, to over the next three years when they're really going to be hitting rough, rough times. Chuck, I have to take another break here. Can you stick around and we can talk a little bit more? Sure thing. Okay. My guest is Chuck Collins from the Institute for Policy Studies and director of the Charity Reform Initiative at the IPS. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
Good tidings to you wherever you are. Good tidings for Christmas and a happy new year. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy new year. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, Photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Bridge later. Happy holidays! 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 Happy
Tom, Haley, Alex, Alexis, help! And the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with uh, Chuck Collins, who uh, is from the Institute for Policy Studies, among other places and interests. Uh, Chuck, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. You bet. Just before just before the break, Chuck, we were uh, talking a little bit about adding um, charitable uh, foundations and uh, uh, just charities in general uh, to any emergency stimulus uh, relief package that may or may not be passed at some to be determined point in the future um, and that adds to the list of course we're talking about you know John Q public and hopefully we'll see another round of twelve hundred dollar checks for uh, people that are having trouble uh, paying their heat bill this winter or even paying the rent uh, paying the mortgage um, and then also states and, and cities have been uh, hungry for having their coffers shored up a little bit. Um, how should the people negotiating this uh, stimulus really look at how much money it will take and, and prioritize recipients of benefit? That's a good question. I mean, I think um, there's, I think, helping un- people who are unemployed, who've who've lost their jobs, whose jobs have vanished, I think, as you say, aid to state and local governments right now is really vital. And that's that does affect not just government employees, that affects that nonprofit sector. You know, when people talk about what are the nonprofit groups in Genesee County and places that, you know, really kind of make the fabric of life livable for a lot of people. Those are the groups that are affected by state and local budget cuts. Um, So it has a ripple effect. And the federal government can provide aid to the states, just like they did under the CARES Act. You know, um, a number of states created state-level hazard pay uh, or were able to add to unemployment benefits at the state level because of the federal support. Um, so yeah, we should, we should prioritize uh, in the same way we're talking about how do we use the vaccine, you know, at a, at a certain point, essential workers, people who are getting up every day and are sort of out in the public and are doing frontline or essential work jobs that put them at much greater exposure uh, than, you know, those of us who are able to work from home. Um, so, so those are the folks that should be getting assistance. I think another kind of stimulus check would make a huge difference right now. Um, and something like an emergency charity stimulus, again, it doesn't add to the debt or deficit at all. It's just saying foundations that are already sitting on trillions of dollars should pay out at a higher rate temporarily for a couple of years and get that money to the frontline nonprofit groups, the food banks and the Boys and Girls Clubs and the centers that are kind of really helping people right now. Um, so those are all the ingredients, I think, that can help us get get to spring, you know. What can John Q. Public do um, to be proactive and not just simply holding their hands out? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a time where uh, being in touch with elected officials, being pushing, pushing a little bit on, you know, why is it that Congress has not been able to act? And uh, you know, if you're if you have a member of Congress that's an, you know, agrees with that, encourage them. Uh, if they're an obstacle, just you know, push them harder. On you know, what are you doing to make sure that uh, the U.S. Congress passes a meaningful relief bill in the coming weeks? We don't, we cannot wait till, you know, January and 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 the new inauguration of a new president. I mean, it, it just would be this. It has to happen in the next week, uh, really, the next week or two to make a difference. So that that that's bringing some urgency to this. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be this way. You know, Chuck, I keep I, I I was wondering about this months ago, why Congress couldn't just um why why everything has to be a big omnibus bill. It has to be all encompassing. Why they can't just simply pass a bill that says, you know, everybody's gonna get another twelve hundred dollar check. Tomorrow we'll fight about states and local governments. Tomorrow we'll fight about charities. Tomorrow we'll fight about um you know, more tax cuts for billionaires. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the uh, you know, the, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is that group in Congress that, uh, you know, has Republicans and Democrats that actually talk to each other, they are making a lot of progress, I think. And they, there is a recognition that there needs to be relief for individuals, support for state and local government, and, you know, things that can actually, you know, be, be positive for small business, you know, aid to, to businesses again to kind of weather the next couple of months. There's, there's pretty, pretty big consensus on, you know, what needs to happen. And then at a certain point, it's just, you're up against the wall. You're up against the Mitch McConnell wall, you know, just, uh, there's, it's unfortunate that this has gotten politicized. You know, the idea that, oh, there's, this is a, you know, aid to state and local governments is some kind of blue state bailout, which is the words that our outgoing president has used, blue state bailout, when in fact it's like mostly helping uh, the states right now that tend to be, that have Republican governors, weather the worst surges in the pandemic right now. So it's just short-sighted and overly political to, to talk that way. These are, these are Americans that are suffering um, but unfortunately, yeah, there, I mean, the good news is there is a problem solvers caucus. There are people who are trying to talk to each other and work this through. And I think that the American public overwhelmingly supports what they're trying to do. Well, Chuck, um, I appreciate you spending all this time with me this morning. Where can people go to, um, maybe get good information about what we've been talking about? Uh, one one uh, place I recommend is uh, this website, inequality.org, that I co-edit. You'll see a lot there. There's a newsletter that comes out every Monday uh, on sort of these issues. Um, also, Americans for Tax Fairness has a lot of good stuff right now on sort of the, the different kinds of bailouts. Um, so that's another resource. Um, and the Coalition for Human Needs at the national level. So those are a couple of groups where if you Google and you can find out what, you know, what a, what the, a good stimulus bill looks like in this moment and how to press and press for it.
Well, Chuck, thanks for spending this time with me this morning. Keep up the good work, and uh, I look forward, uh, as I always do, to our next conversation. Yeah, stay safe. Best to everybody in Genesee County, Flint area. Take care of yourselves. Have a great holiday. All right. Bye-bye. That was Chuck Collins. He is uh, the director of the Charity Reform Initiative, uh, among other things, at the Institute for Policy Studies. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. program don't you know go on go on get out of here 